0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com businessgoldcard.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek,
2: a reporter on the Cross Asset Team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the Markets Team.
1: This week on the show, we all have burning questions. So for a few examples, I grabbed some from Google's most asked list. A few of the top ones were, is water wet? can dogs eat apples? And my personal favorite, does he like me? Because I'm sure if you ask Google if he or she likes you, Google will have the answer for you. But likely the most burning question facing investors right now is what does 2020 hold for global financial markets? So thankfully, our two guests will try to answer
2: that for us. Wait a minute. Can dogs eat apples? Because yeah. that's one of the top search questions Interestingly on Google. Enough,
1: can dogs eat apples? And is water wet? Because that's a heavily debated question. You well, you, know?
2: You're know, you kind of leaving us hanging with the answer. Can dogs eat apples? I think no?
1: they can. I don't see why not. I'm pretty sure my dog has eaten apples a few times.
2: All right all right mistakenly but (laughs) if if any listeners dogs uh suffer problems from eating apples you can blame sarah here
1: he's lived to 15 so (laughs) an apple a day keeps the bed away
2: (laughs) and of course we'll close out this week's episode with our tradition the craziest thing i saw in markets this week sarah i don't want to put undue pressure on you but i i've come very well stocked with, I think, not only the craziest thing I've seen in markets this week, possibly all year.
1: Look, I've I've got to say that I come under pressure every week, especially in recent weeks, because I feel like you have been spending your entire weeks preparing for this moment. (laughs) Um,
2: Guilty. Guilty.
1: (laughs) At least you admit it.
2: (laughs) But I also, I vaguely feel sorry for our guests this week because we're going to force them to make predictions about 2020. And I just want to tell them up front, this was all Sarah's idea. She wrote the script. She's the bad cop in this situation. Uh, I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. (laughs) But let's introduce them now. The first time on the show, we have an investment strategist uh, from Edward Jones. Uh, She also has a very distinguished resume. She was chief economist at Redfin. She held positions at the CFTC at Harvard. I will go out on a limb, though, and say the most prestigious entry on her resume is uh, some time as a senior economist at Bloomberg LP. That's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's <all> right. It's <laughs> a little biased. It's it's a, little a little bit
2: biased. biased. <laughs> but that is her voice there. Her name is Neela Richardson. Neela, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. And let me just start off with one thing. If you have to ask if he likes you over Google... The answer is probably no. I'm that's
2: just gonna a go.
1: Really
0: good point. Go. I do all know. Oh, here, it's but like you're, great you're to be here. Sadly with Sadly,
1: typing on your computer. Yeah. I'm gonna oh, set God. up a
2: web page that just returns no for that one. <laughs> where, you know, triggers that search. Uh, and someone I know who doesn't like me, uh, a guest, a, a frequent guest on the show, uh, our own Macroman columnist, markets live blogger and strategist, Cameron Kreis. Welcome back. Always a pleasure to be. <laughs> Well, Nila, let's start with you. I know you gave us a list of some of uh, your sort of. I don't. I hate to use the word predictions, but what you're looking out for in 2020? Could you just boil it down? Whenever I see lists like this, my first question is, what are you most confident in uh, on this list? What is the the thing you're most confident about markets in 2020?
0: No recession. Yeah. And, and that's for a variety of reasons. If you think about where we were this time last year, we were looking at uh, the tail end of a rate hike. Right. <laughs> and now we've done a complete U-turn uh, three rate cuts this year, and going into next year, looks like no movement. And the markets are expecting uh, the Federal Reserve to stay pat on rates. We have a consumer that's still in good shape. A blowout labor market report showing really strong job growth. So the, the economy has one tool in its toolbox. It's the consumer. And the consumer looks very strong right now. It would be helpful if the consumer got a little help. So We don't think there's a recession. We think it's avoided. The economy has this really great power to grow during an election year. I don't know why. It just (laughs) happens. Um, But we do think actually growth will be slower next year than this year. So that's the one caveat. Don't know why. Maybe something like re-election pressure. Who knows?
1: Uh, But Cameron, you put out a list of non-predictions for 2020. And one that was related to the idea of no recession was that we won't see another inversion of the two's tenths curve.
3: Why? Well, I, I would take a slightly different tack. You could argue that a steepening of the curve from here would actually be consistent with a recession, in so far as the front end would rally harder, yields would come lower than uh, than than the back end. But uh, like most of the stuff I do, uh, that view is predicated on some sort of quantitative uh, model. Uh, the, the drivers of the yield curve are basically. Um, Uh, The real Fed funds rate, which has gone from slightly positive to to now negative, a negative real Fed funds rate is consistent with a relatively steep curve. The level of the Fed funds rate relative to some norm, I like to use a 10-year average. Uh, This time last year, as Neil was alluding to, we were at the tail end of a tightening cycle, so rates relative to history were very, very high. That's come a bit lower now with those three rate cuts. Again, that's consistent with steepening. The one major pressure for flattening is the labor market because it may surprise you. But it's, it's, a, it's a true fact that for a given level of the Fed funds rate, the lower the unemployment rate, the lower the 10-year yield. Uh, so if the labor market remains strong, that is something that could actually keep the curve relatively flat. But my framework suggests the 2s-10s curve should be about 50 basis points. And we're like 27 now. We were 23 when
2: I wrote the piece. So
3: I'm already four <laughs> basis points uh, uh, a, more more, more margin. Ad- moving in your
1: direction. Yeah, exactly.
2: And so none of your thesis about the yield curve has to do with the Fed buying up huge amounts of, of the front end of the curve. Uh, well, they're the buying bills. treasury bills. Right. So
3: a three-month bill is not the same as a two-year um, a two-year... Sec- so you're talking to the 2-10, yeah. 2-10, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, not to, yeah. not same. So there's, the a, there's a more forward Basically, treasury bills are anchored to the Fed funds rate, plus or minus, whereas 2s, there's a lot more volatility because you can assert, essentially embed future rate cuts if they are required into a two-year note that you couldn't necessarily do in a, in a three-month bill.
1: So, Neela, another one of yours that is related to the conversation we're currently having was where will rates go? Is it possible rates go lower? And I thought it was very interesting uh, that you laid out a range, and that range was 2 to 3%. So at the higher end of different ranges that I've personally heard from different strategists, different investors, how would we potentially get there? Yes, we're not that far away from 2% on the 10-year yield right now, but if you have a range of 3% at the higher end, what would it
0: actually be? What would have to happen for us to get to the higher end? To be fair, we think that we'll be at the lower end of the- that range. So we added a lot of cushion there. I actually disagree with Cameron, though I'm a big fan of his writing on the terminal. I do think there is a, there could be a short-lived inversion because the yield curve is so flat. But what we're seeing is consistent with growth in the economy. We think that growth in a strong labor market actually adds a little inflation to the mix, which will lead to a, a bit of an increase in interest rates overall. That is also in this context, though, of a global economy that we think is also going to be improving over next year.
2: So uh, in your role at Edward Jones, you uh, presumably speak to a lot of uh, individual sort of what we would call mom and pop investors, uh, maybe well-heeled mom and pop investors, I (laughs) guess. What uh, what's on their minds these days, and what sort of yield would start to catch their attention in the bond market mm-hmm. to move them out of equities?
0: You know, uh, we have seven million clients across North America. A lot of them are either in or heading towards retirement, and so while this has been a great market for equities and bonds this year, we're expecting lower returns next year. And as they transition from uh, accumulating assets to disbursement of assets in retirement, they're really concerned about the very low interest rate environment that we're in now and the high price of bonds. Where's that entry point? A lot of them are over-invested in equities for their risk profile. You -hmm. know, if you're 65, 75 years old, No offense, but you should probably be taking some risk out of the market and rebalancing your portfolio. You've done well maybe in tech stocks. They're up 46% year to date. You've been doing well for the past decade. Now it's time to rethink what you need going into the future. And that is a hard transition when bond prices have risen so much this year.
1: Really quickly, I want to rewind a bit just because you said you disagreed with Cameron and we all know that we love a little bit of disagreement. (laughs) It always makes for some good discussion. So why? Why do you think, yes, the yield curve is relatively flat, could be easy to invert once again, but why do you actually believe that we could see
0: that? Because it's such a muddy signal. It's just muddy. It's not a clear. It was never a perfect signal. Uh, it is uh, predictive of recessions. It's reliable in some sense, but it's not f- flawless, especially that twos tens portion of the curve. We prefer the three month uh, 10 year yield. But if you look around the world, you see uh, so much of sovereign debt happening returning negative yields, Uh, that's added pressure in terms of foreign demand for the long end of the curve. And that long end demand is actually what's suppressing long term rates. And so it is there is a tendency, I think, to when you look at a flat yield curve to read into it that this is something substantive about the economy. We don't think that it's saying the same signal uh, that it did in previous uh, market cycles. That's the context, and in which I, I might disagree, but I haven't seen his math, so <laughs> I could be convinced otherwise. Math matters. <laughs> math matters. I've a watched lot. a lot of these debates.
2: Do we give Cameron a 30 second rebuttal? If a he would like rebuttal. to,
0: as long as you don't talk about health care. No, <laughs> Just no
3: I, I I would actually say your worldview is actually consistent with a steeper curve insofar as I think we can probably all agree that the Fed isn't going to hike rates this year. They've basically more or less promised that, uh, and frankly, Trump would probably sack Jay Powell if he tried. So if you're right that growth is okay, then that, uh, and inflation comes back, then you should see a more of a risk premium built in to the back end of the curve, because the front end will be relatively well anchored, and that's actually consistent with the steepening. And, hey, hey, listen, of course, the, the yield curve could invert temporarily, but it's no fun saying it could invert. It's much better to... <laughs> Stick your uh, stick your neck out and say and say a it won't. Sign. <laughs> I
2: will say Cameron goes out on a limb he with does. his non-predictions. I've always suggested to him just pat it with some really easy stuff. Like say Mike Regan will not lose 20 pounds this year, no matter <laughs> no matter how much he promises, he will. But uh, let's get to another one of yours, Cameron, and, and Neil, and maybe you can weigh in on this too. But um US equities will not outperform the rest of the world. And as you write, this is kind of a consensus call. A lot of people believe that it's time, it's, it's finally time for international equities to outperform partly perhaps a, a value play the, similar to the value rotation going in within the, the U.S. market itself. Uh, is, that, is that basically it, that it's sort of happy days are here again, let's buy those cyclical value stocks? Well, I think there's a few issues. One is just the principle of mean reversion.
3: Um, U.S. equities outperform the rest of the world dramatically. Over the last decade, uh, U.S. equities in terms of the longer-term value proposition, say going out five or ten years, look pretty dreadful. Uh, They're pretty fully priced. So just from 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 a value perspective, you could argue, yes, the U.S. should underperform. From a mean reversion perspective, you could argue the U.S. should underperform. And if Neil is right and global growth kind of starts ticking higher, well, it was the rest of the world that took the biggest hit. Uh, over the last 18 to 24 months uh, on, on growth. So it's presumably the rest of the world that will enjoy the biggest bounce, and that should be consistent with a better performance in risk assets in the rest of the world. And if you look at something like uh, the chart of the stock 600, In Europe, it bounced off of the same level, which is roughly 4.15, three times since the year 2000. And we finally sort of have broken through that level. Uh, And if we get a monthly close, if you're a chart monkey, it's going to look hyper bullish. So that's something else to consider.
0: Would you agree, Nila? I agree partially. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I should say I mostly agree. But you know, Cameron says this year, so I have well, to. He yeah. has to. It's <laughs> the rules of the game, right? Right. But we are actually overweight international equities relative to U.S. equities, so we put our money and our clients' money where Cameron's mouth is, and we do think that this is a good opportunity for long-term investors because of valuations. International developed or trading at about a twenty. 20% discount to large cap US and uh, emerging market stocks about a 30% discount. So they're attractively priced. We also see higher yields in international equities, which is great for a long-term investor. And and so we're seeing also uh, some stabilization in uh, global manufacturing, and that will be helpful uh, along with some coordinated central bank stimulus. So for all of these reasons, we agree with Cameron and that international equities, whether they outperform in 2020 or maybe a little later, later are a good place if you are investing for the long term.
2: So and yet I look at the companies in the US that that captivate the imagination, your Amazon, your Apple, your Facebook, your Google, you know, on and on. I mean, it seems like in the equity market the innovation that that growth has really been centered for whatever reason in the US over say the last, you know, decade really since the financial crisis. I mean, are, are what you both saying kind of uh, that this this craze for growth stocks is is dying out a little bit and that, you know, because I look at Europe and I don't I don't get excited about any single individual companies like I do in the U.S.
0: We think overall equities will returns will be lower this this coming year in 2020. Yeah. Um Right now, uh, valuations, if you look at U.S. equities, they're above historical averages. So we don't think that there's going to be a big lift from multiple expansion, that what growth we see in stock prices will come from earnings and earnings have slowed. We can't expect that 20 percent plus year over year growth that we saw in 2017 or 2018. We're talking single, single digits, low single digits in the third quarter of this year. We think that rebounds a little bit to mid-single digits next year.
3: And the other thing to consider, um, it's difficult to quantify, is there's a sort of a regulatory tail risk with a lot of these tech names uh, as as well. You know, you've seen France...
2: Bipartisan risk, too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well,
3: you know, and it's not just in the United States, right? You've seen France start to slap the digital tax um, on U.S. tech yeah, you know, we don't need to talk about politics here, but various of uh, the presidential candidates have spoken of some of these tech giants in, shall we say, less than glowing terms, uh, which could could pose some risk uh, again, moving forward for some of these guys.
0: I really think the tech sector is where banks who are About 10 years ago, coming out of the financial crisis, there was a lot of regulation on banks, but they were made stronger for it. But you did see some consolidation in the industry. Going forward, tech is now in that uh, position. Hopefully, the outcome means regulation that protects consumer privacy and data that ultimately makes the tech company stronger. But there's a little pain in that growth process.
1: I will add, in trying to read... As many 2020 outlooks as possible. Goldman seems to be the only one that does have the out of consensus view here or the one that really jumps out. They're sticking with the US call and the reason behind that Mike is because they do continue to see growth and tech outperforming. So that really does inform the geographic call too because it's hard to move away from US if you still see tech growth those companies being the ones that lead.
0: Goldman may feel comfortable doing that in 2020. not everyone is making such a bold one-year oh, not prediction. <laughs>
2: Now uh both of you also touched on uh is the tr- basically the theme of is the trade war over and uh Cameron I'll just read one of your lines it was, it was a pretty good one you said you can't stop tariff, man. You, you can only hope to contain him. Uh, you no know, does that sort of jibe with the way you're thinking that uh, the trade war is not a risk that's been completely wiped off the oh, absolutely.
0: The table? Trade uncertainty is here to stay, I think. Even if you get a phase one trade deal, um, we, no one seen the terms of this deal. Uh, we hope that it means that we can roll back some of those existing tariffs. But that's not clear yet. But we have seen a pickup in tariffs in unexpected places like Brazil and Argentina just a couple of weeks ago based on uh, some charges of currency manipulation that seemed somewhat unfounded given what the economies are are looking at at, like in those countries. And then a discussion about tariffs on French imports, which was also surprising given that It's almost New Year's Eve, and those are really valuable products (laughs) in terms of champagne for for U.S. consumers. So my my larger point is is that tariffs have been used to get both economic and policy outcomes by this administration, which means there's a bit of uncertainty of when they will roll on and when they'll be rolled back. And that uncertainty has influenced uh, market sentiment. With
1: that, I have a follow-up question, Cameron, and if this is allowed for your non-prediction number eight. Um, so you say before that fantastic line that Mike read, U.S. tariff levels on China will not stay at current levels throughout the entirety of 2020. So my follow-up to you is: if they're not going to stay at the same level, are they going to go higher or are they going to go lower?
3: Well, yeah, I think the risk is that uh, <laughs> you know, even if there is an initial agreement, which we seem to have, uh, that the u.s will use tariffs as a sort of an enforcement mechanism Mm -hmm. and you know the issue with the way this whole um, process has been executed is that you sort of you're on your train home uh you know 6 p.m or whenever you go home uh, on a a random thursday and all of a sudden there's a tweet you know i've decided to put tariffs on china because they're not playing ball or, or or whatever and that's 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 clearly you know a risk or you know maybe even i i given the evidence of the last 12 months, probably the base case right. uh, about how this is going to play out.
0: Yeah, and the big bold prediction that I don't think is actually that bold is that there will be no comprehensive trade deal between the U.S. and China next year. Oh, yeah. uh,
3: <laughs> I mean, the bold, the, the, the bold prediction... Is that there will be one. Yeah, that is is there will be one, yeah. Right,
2: right. It, you know, Cameron, and it sort of gets to the... Um, the problem with the predictions like this when we're in such an unpredictable environment. I'm curious, you know, if you could go back to your days as a trader and a portfolio manager, when the calendar turned, did it mean anything to you? Like, I know in this business, we're we're sort of forced to have these outlooks. Everyone on Wall Street who's a strategist has to provide one. Would you even think about 2020 as a year? absolutely and the the
3: primary reason is that that number next to the ytd column goes from whatever it was on december 31st to zero so if you're up 20 percent, say uh in december yeah okay you don't want to lose it but you can afford to swing the bat a little bit and uh maybe lose three or four percent on january 1st the last thing you want to do is to have a big position that that runs you over and be down three or four percent by January 15th, because that essentially crimps your risk-taking for the entire year, yeah. Um, at least until you climb out of the hole. Now, back in the good old days, before the crisis, uh, for macro products, you always had kind of a tailwind, because the U.S. investment banks would start their financial year on December 1st. So those guys had these brand new spanking P&Ls, uh, when everyone else was sort of being a little circumspect in December and they would rush into piling into their favorite trades and you would see stuff move uh, a lot, uh, which would then give some momentum into, into January. Well, now they're all sort of commercial banks like everybody else. So we're, we all have to start uh, a, a, on January 1st and we all have this sort of same, t- the tyranny of the p the tyranny of the flat p at the beginning of the year. And that definitely informs how you approach taking risk.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm curious if the Edward Jones individual investors think in, in calendar year terms. And the re- one reason I ask, um, I was reading, I think it was uh, Wells Fargo Institute had a note out to clients saying, remember to rebalance your portfolio. I mean, we think of institution, institutional portfolios rebalancing on a monthly or quarterly Basis that individual though, um, I'm, I'm curious how they think about it. I did. I actually looked into this a little bit on our blog, and I noticed that when you have a year like we had where equities outperform uh, fixed income by such a, a wide margin, I can't. I forget what it is. It's it's almost like twenty percent now. Yeah, it's about twenty percent. Twenty percent. That you do tend to see a little bit of softness in equities into January and February in the following year, almost like they rebalance in the new year. How big of a deal is rebalancing to, to individual investors? Do they listen to you when you tell them to do it? And do they do it on a sort of set schedule?
0: Yes, we hope so. (laughs) And we do advise it. It's really important, especially as you're getting into the end of your investment horizon. You don't want to be overweight equities if you expect more volatility. And that is another prediction that we have. We expect more volatility ahead. And so we want to make sure that our retirees, our, our families and our clients are prepared for the volatility. And that means rebalancing into bonds. Now, how do you do it? Sometimes you have to tie it in with other behaviors like it's the end of the year you're starting your new year's resolutions don't forget to rebalance so that's a a messaging trick that may be used and maybe that's why you see behaviorally uh, clients doing that or uh, retail investors doing that towards the end yeah
2: you know, you were mentioning before the the uh, taping here about how a lot of clients are talking, a lot of older clients, which surprised me, asking you about uh, Bitcoin and pot stocks. So I'm curious, your advice is it 60% Bitcoin, <laughs> 40% pot stocks? That's a what's, what's the allo- allocation? <laughs> it, but but tell us about that, because I'm surprised that the the sort of the older generation is curious about this. You
0: know, our I think investors are very alert to headlines and they're very alert to trends in investing, but I think it tells you two things. One, uh, clients have a tendency in a low interest rate environment to search for yield. And that's one of the risks we're seeing at the portfolio level that because the returns on bonds is so low, it's like, can I move into high yield? Can I substitute bonds for utilities or other defensive stocks? And so we're very cautious in making sure that they understand that bonds serve a particular place. On the other end of the spectrum, there is some kind of safety and security when you've seen returns like this and you've seen the market be relatively calm this year. I mean, we haven't had a correction at all this year, which on average, historically speaking, we should have at least had one. So clients are feeling- Recency
2: bias, basically. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: They're feeling pretty good about the market. They've had some good returns. And so they're saying, okay, what else is out there? Can I pay attention to I don't have to worry about my portfolio. What is this- Bitcoin thing <laughs> I've been thinking about. But for the record, tell me about Fandor <laughs> or, or our pot stocks. Are those uh, my 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 nephew was telling me about those and but we we obviously caution heavily against if we could have a negative allocation to bitcoin <laughs> and, and pot stocks we would probably encourage that. We don't think uh, that they have a place in an investment portfolio because they haven't been through a market cycle. And that is our criteria when we think about long-term quality assets. We want to see that they've gone through a cycle. Uh, Potsocks have not. (laughs)
1: Before we get to the craziest thing, because I'm waiting to hear what Mike says since he hyped it up so much earlier in the show. I'm curious, does that make either of you a bit nervous? Because in the run up that we've seen at the end of the year, keep hearing there's no euphoria. There's no euphoria. Uh, People are still very skeptical. People are nervous. That means that we can go on for quite a while. But if older clients are truly comfortable enough to ask about pot stocks and Bitcoin that makes me wonder if that rings a bell for either of you.
0: Well, on the one hand, and I'll answer quickly and and give Cameron his his swing. But on the one hand, uh, our clients' portfolios are, on the outset, intended to go through several market cycles. So we are talking about a select group of people who have uh, a balanced portfolio and are interested in other asset classes. And we have recommendations that they can follow up on. but at the same time the markets have been quite calm and though we've seen stocks hit new fresh highs over even over the last couple of weeks they've only inched along right so we are not seeing big movements uh, in the stock market yet. You're not seeing the kind of euphoria that I saw in the housing market at Freddie Mac as a housing economist in 2005 and 2008. This is a different market. And so I think that's important to uh, articulate to our clients. We're not seeing asset bubbles in this market.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if we would should expect to see the sort of euphoria that we saw 20 years ago, just because of demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, the people with all the money are the are the older <laughs> generation, uh, whom uh, uh, are being advised to switch into bonds. <laughs> right. um, and the um, the younger generation, the, the millennial um, generation, doesn't have the same financial wherewithal that. Uh, say the boomers did at the same point in their generational yeah. life cycle. And it, it it seems as if for the last several years, if you look at the um, the asset allocation of the millennial generation through some of the Fed data, that they've been pretty risk averse. Yeah. Um, so you could argue that there's perhaps some pent up demand for both real and financial assets from from that generation, but I guess they would say they need to pay off their student loans or have right. them have them magicked away before uh, before they they can do so.
0: Cameron raises a really important point that is actually supported anecdotally by our financial advisors at Edward Jones. Younger clients tend to be more risk averse than their parents or their grandparents because yeah. they've seen their parents struggle through a financial crisis. They have a lot of student debt. They are faced with very high home prices, and so they tend to not put on risk. Uh, risky assets in the same degree as other generations and that's interesting for uh, net wealth and family wealth going forward
2: right i mean this is the time of uh, their life when they should be embracing risk right exactly well sarah let's embrace some crazy things i think it's time was that a good segue
1: (laughs) great segue you always come up with wonderful fluid
2: (laughs) (laughs) i'm saving mine for last because it's that good
0: okay does that mean I have to go yeah, first? Yeah.
2: Well, who wants to go first? Neela, did they tell us, tell you about our gimmick here, the craziest thing they, in markets? They
0: did, and I'm going to take the fat pitch. I think the impeachment vote this week was uh, is a crazy thing, especially if you tie that to a week where we saw another record high met. So it really shows you the disconnect between politics and economic and corporate fundamentals, which matter more to investors. It's the uh, fundamentals that matter more. So the punchline to me in this crazy time period that we are in politically is don't play politics with your portfolio.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty crazy that we can impeach a president and and have equity markets close at a record uh, in the same week. Uh, That's not bad. All right, well done, Nila. Thank you. Cameron, you got any crazy things for us? Oh,
3: absolutely. (laughs) My
2: my crazy thing is that the repo
3: market was completely well-behaved this week. If you read some of the research floating around the street over the prior couple of weeks, it sounded like there was short-end liquidity Armageddon. The world was ending. uh, uh, On on route, and that uh, Zoltan from Credit Suisse said the Fed would have to buy coupon securities by the end of the month. Uh, to, to, to tame the dragon of uh, unruly money markets. Uh, this week was a particularly important week because you had the settlement of last week's treasury auctions and uh, the 17th is typically the peak for corporate tax payments where they take money out of banks and give them to the treasury. Both of those events passed with nary a whiff of any dislocation in the repo market, So that was crazy.
1: Also crazy (laughs) that that research that you brought up was also brought up at the press conference with Fed Chair Powell, uh, which was (laughs) a pretty interesting moment.
2: Yes. (laughs) All right. Sorry, the competition is only getting stronger and stronger. All right. Can you top these two?
1: So this is a story that's pretty crazy. It's also a little bit scary. Uh, So if you still have some shopping to do for the holidays and you're buying things on Amazon, uh, maybe pay attention. So this was actually a story out of the Wall Street Journal. And the headline was, you might be buying trash on Amazon, literally. And what they did was uh, a team over there had noticed that there were some sellers on Amazon created shops. And what they would do is they would literally go dumpster diving. Uh, They would find items. They would refurnish them, uh, do whatever they may with them, and they would sell them on Amazon on and they would even post videos of them on YouTube. So the reporters over there decided that they would try to do the same and see how hard it was. Uh, so really quickly reading you one short segment. It said, the journal set out to test whether these claims were true. Reporters went dumpster diving in several New Jersey towns and retrieved <laughs> dozens of discards from the trash including a stencil set, scrapbook paper, and a sealed jar of Trader Joe's lemon curd. <laughs> uh, they set up a store. Yeah, they set up a store on Amazon Amazon to see if they would be able to sell it and they said it turned out to be very easy Um, so long story short what it comes down to is Amazon and how much power they have over their third-party sellers to control what they're actually selling Uh, but yeah be careful out there
2: that's pretty good that's pretty good (laughs) especially the New Jersey dumpster angle as as a New Jersey and you know I'm interested in that it reminds me of a story I I was working at a newspaper in Trenton like 25 years ago and a big story we had was a, a guy's arm was found in the dumpster, and it had his name tattooed on it, Steve. And uh, and so hopefully that does not show up on Amazon or anything like that. I That's don't crazy. Yeah, That's says crazy <laughs> That's insane. Anyway, now these were all good. By the way, thank you all. But it's time for the we're winning. Ready. It's we're time ready. for the winning entry of the craziest thing uh, in markets this week. So uh, Neil, this goes out to all your older uh, investors interested in Bitcoin. Um, as we all know, these Bitcoin exchanges used to get hacked all the time. And the solution that people would do is literally take the coins offline onto what's known as cold storage would basically be a hard drive. That's not connected to the, the internet. So fast forward to last year and we have this fellow named Gerald cotton. He started a Canadian crypto exchange called quadriga. Um, and apparently um he died he was traveling in india he's only 30 years old and he died mysteriously in india uh, of complications what they said from crohn's disease problem is he had about roughly 200 million dollars in bitcoin they think was in cold storage now the way cold storage works is only one person knows the password right so this guy had all the the clients of this exchange. All their money was either on. They're not. I, I don't think they're quite sure if it was on his laptop. He ran the whole exchange from his personal laptop, and a lot of it, some of it in cold storage. They think uh, some of it, it, like the old South Park, it's gone. It's gone. So the guy dies, right? And and you know, users of this exchange are out in the neighborhood of two hundred million in crypto. Some lawyers get involved. And they don't believe this guy really died. They think he faked his own death. So they go to the Royal Mounted... Wait, was it the, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? The Mounties. The Mounties, yeah. The guys with the the, the red coats on horses. That it, it makes it even crazier when you get these guys involved. Think. And they go to them and they say, we want to dig up this guy's grave because we don't think he's really buried in it. We think it, it's a scam. He faked his own death and he made off with... 200 million in bitcoin sarah's jaw is like on the floor i really so did they well i don't think they've ruled yet uh whether they will exhume the body or not but the there's uh, a rush because of uh quote unquote de- decomposition effects they're afraid if they leave them down there long enough uh they won't be able to identify them or not so um yeah craziest thing i saw this week
1: I'm speechless. You win. (laughs) (laughs) But now I I really need
0: the follow-ups from now
3: on because I want to know how how this ends. I think we should send Mike an assignment to the exhumation.
0: (laughs) And you've added another risk that I will pass along (laughs) in in terms of Bitcoin to our clients.
2: (laughs) You can't take Uh, it with you. Where can you if you're uh, this guy, baby? (laughs) And shout out to Matt Levine. That was in his excellent uh, daily newsletter, Money Stuff, on Bloomberg that uh, presumably everyone in the world already subscribes to. But if not, check it out.
1: And with that said, Neela Richardson, Cameron Christ, thank you so much for joining and happy
0: holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. It's been a pleasure.
3: Same to you.
1: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Cameron Kreis is at Fifth Rule. And Neela Richardson is at Neela Richardson. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.